Okay, turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 4, and we are going to continue on our series. We started last week on the simplicity of the gospel, and um, we kind of just laid a foundation last week. I kind of explained the way the Lord has been working and dealing with my heart uh, since really uh, March, And, and so we're in this mode right now of just... Uh, allowing that um, directive of our participation in the gospel to really come alive. And, and uh, sort of the goal, my, my dream would be this, and I feel like this is a dream of the Lord, that as a community, we would all connect to the mission of the gospel and that we would all participate in the mission of the gospel. And it's easy because, you know, in the church... Uh, it's, it's easy to sort of excuse yourself a little bit of it because we think this way, well, if I'm giving, I'm participating because we've emphasized give so the gospel can go forth a lot. We've emphasized that a lot in the, in the church in the West, which I, I, that's fine. We need to emphasize that. But at sometimes what happens is we think, well, I'm giving tithes and offerings, and so I'm participating in the gospel. But I, I would tell you that the giving to see the gospel go forth in places that you that you can't actually visit, that's sort of the bonus. Because the admonition of Scripture is that we all participate in the gospel as members of the body of Christ individually. Amen. And so uh, I wonder if we've kind of let ourselves off the hook, you know, thinking that our check in the offering equals our full participation in the gospel, which I appreciate that, and I think there is participation in the gospel. And Paul definitely talked to the, to the church in the New Testament. He said, participate with me in the gospel through giving, and that is real participation. But uh, I don't think that's supposed to you know, replace our, uh, our individual participation in the mission of the gospel. And so last week, I want to give a little recap of what we covered last week, and then this week we'll talk about Specifically, we'll talk about the, what is the message of the gospel. Uh, we kind of have this word gospel, and we, we, we're familiar with the word, but uh, maybe if we passed out a test and said, now explain what the gospel is in, you know, a few hundred words, we would get a variety of explanations. And so I want to just literally walk through the, the details of the biblical uh, explanation of the gospel. I think that might be really helpful for us if we're going to engage in sharing the gospel. Amen. So uh, last week, we, we kind of laid some groundwork, and I, and I talked about some verses that we're probably familiar with. We talked about Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. And, and the, the point that I emphasize is this, that there's one message that has power to convert uh, somebody's spirit to convert them from death to life, to give them entrance into the kingdom. There's one message, and that's the message of the gospel. And uh, sometimes we can get focused on the, the tool we use or the method that we use to, to sort of minister the gospel and, and sort of think, well, if we don't use the right method, then the gospel is not effective. And we, in, in the West, we will focus heavy, heavily on what's the tool we're using. And I, I just wonder if sometimes we've put too much emphasis on the tool and not enough emphasis on the simple truth that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If you, if you share the gospel, it is divinely powerful to convict and soundly convert a sinner. Beloved, if we don't believe that, that's a core nugget of our faith. We're, I mean, if we don't believe that, we're, you know, we've strayed from the course the gospel message, the message of the gospel will pierce and penetrate the hardest heart. It doesn't matter if they're wealthy or poor. It doesn't matter if they have high, sustain, high standing in society or no standing in society. It doesn't matter who the person is. The gospel is de- uh, designed by God to penetrate human hearts. Regardless of how stony, how hard, how arrogant, how perverse, how wrapped up in sin, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We've got to get to this place where we realize we are loaded with power in the proclamation of the gospel. I don't care if, if you know, I mean, think about it. We, you know, so often 
will think, well, I, I don't want to, you know, I, want, I don't want them to think that I'm weird or whatever. Uh, you have got something that will completely uh, break the stone of their heart. It will, it will shift their paradigm. The gospel, it is, it is the arrow the sinner's heart is the target, and the gospel is trained. It's designed to nail that target right in the, in, the, in the center. There's no way that we should be intimidated by somebody who's lost thinking what we, don't ha- like what we have isn't powerful enough to touch them. There's no way. We have got the dunamis power of God able to convict and convert the sinner. And as I said last week, when, you, when you're walking around and you've got faith in what the gospel is, it's like you've got a, a sticky bomb or a smart bomb in your pocket, and when you share the gospel, you just, just stick it right on them. It's the power of God. You've just delivered to them a bomb that will release power to blow up that stony heart, to break the rock, and to convert them. The gospel is the power of God. We've got to believe that point. Mark 16, next we talked about how, how when we preach the gospel... In Mark 16, 15 through 20, Jesus promised that signs and wonders would follow the declaration of the word. And furthermore, they would confirm the truth of the gospel. That's a, man, that's awesome stuff. Not only is the message a, a powerful bomb that will break open their heart, the Lord works with us in the declaration of the gospel through signs and wonders to confirm the truth of the gospel. And we'll probably take a whole... Uh, message or at least part of a message to talk about the manifestation of the power of God as a uh, as a credibility point as a as a confirming power of the of the truth of the gospel but that's what mark 16:15 through 20 tells us that when we preach the gospel the lord works with us you're not alone in that and you set yourself up to move in wonderful you know signs wonders and miracles i i mean I, this this is like you know, do you want to do something, you know, kind of wild in God? Share the gospel and see what God will do to confirm it. I love this idea. This, this gets you out of, you know, it gets you out there in the who knows kind of zone. Like, what's God going to do? I mean, he, he could do anything. And the clear thing that through, that through the New Testament he does is he heals people. He does a bunch of signs and wonders, but the thing that he continuously confirms the gospel with is healing. And so he's kind of attached those two, but in Mark 16, he kind of opens the door and just goes, I'll do all sorts of stuff. I'll, I'll make it so if you pick up a snake, you know, and you're preaching the gospel and you get bit by it, or if it bites you or whatever, he goes, I'll, do, I'll even heal you of that. Or if you drink something deadly out there while you're, you know, in the mission field or whatever, you won't, you won't die. And people will go, wait, what is going on with this person? And we see that in the New Testament. Paul gets bit by a snake, and, the, and that sign confirmed to the, the natives where he was preaching that the gospel was real. My, the point that I think the reason why the Lord puts that in there, those things about the snake and the, and the, and the drinking of any deadly thing, it's not so you come into church and like you know, do the cyanide thing or whatever, like churches actually do that, uh, or snake handling. It's not so you do that. What God's doing is he's giving us ideas, details of things that he will do. He's opening the door to all sorts of wild stuff that God can do. He can do anything, signs and wonders, to confirm the truth of the gospel. We don't go and chase down snakes. Amen. <laughs> we don't have a, a box over here with snakes that we're going to just pass out. We, we don't do that. But if you're out there, in, you know, somewhere where there are snakes and you get bit while you're preaching the gospel, you've got actually a specific word for healing. But my point is, I really feel like the reason those are in there is to open it wide open. God can do anything. He can heal you of a snake bite. He can heal you of cyanide poisoning. He can, who knows what. All sorts of stuff. He just, what he does is he just blows out the barriers of your faith and goes, just believe me to do wild stuff to confirm the truth of the word of the gospel. I love that. I love that. And then uh, Matthew 28, he said, when you, when you win them to the Lord, when, you, when you're uh, making disciples, he goes, here's how you do it. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. So you preach the gospel. When they get saved, discipling the nation starts with simply teaching uh, new believers Jesus' words. And, and really, the easiest way to do that is just teach them the Sermon on the Mount. And I talked about last week how the easiest discipleship program is you share the gospel, 
Somebody gets saved, and then you start teaching them about Jesus. I think that's the clear discipleship program of the New Testament, that every believer is actually a, a, a preacher of the gospel and actually a discipler. Whoa, this almost sounds like New Testament Christianity. You, you, mean, you mean the evangelism isn't just for those few people that are like totally gifted? No, I think there are some people that are probably more gifted in evangelism than others. They're, they're better talkers or whatever. They know how to, to you know, make conversations happen or whatever. But uh, no, I think the gospel, the participation of the gospel is for everybody. It's for everybody. And you go, well, don't you think discipleship should happen in, a, in, a, in like a department, like at the discipleship class? No, I don't think that's how it was set up. I don't think it was about having a discipleship class. I think it was about having believers touching unbelievers, the unbelievers getting saved, and then once they get saved, whoever just led them to the Lord starts teaching them about Jesus. That's too simple. I know. We complicate it so incredibly. I was thinking about this, you know, um, this is a little side note. Let's just take a side journey. Uh, in, in, uh, in John 4, the woman at the well, there's a, there is a, um, an evangelism teaching that says, you know, look how Jesus did it. And what he did was he started with a natural uh, conversation, found a bridge in that natural conversation, and then took the bridge on over to a spiritual conversation. He talked about natural water and then talked about living water. And so this is the best way to, to share the gospel is to start with something natural and then go over the bridge and then, you know, turn that into the gospel. And, and I think that's got merit. The problem is I'm not that smart because <laughs> I've done this for a long time. I start conversations with people and I'm talking about who knows what, the weather or the sports or whatever, and I'm going, okay. How do I tie in the fact that the Falcons lost to the fact that this guy's got to get saved? You know, I mean, so what do you, okay, you know how the Falcons lost? You're about to lose too. Because you're about to go to hell if you don't know Jesus. Like, that's way more awkward. That's way more awkward. So I found myself, and I don't know about you, but I found myself stalled out in, in preaching the gospel because I'm looking for the bridge. I'm looking for that transition or whatever. And, uh, and so then, because I can't find the transition, I'll just say something like, well, God bless you. And I'm hoping like, Lord, can you just use like the fact that I said God like as a seed? You know, I can somehow make them think about you all of a sudden and maybe they'll get saved somehow. I mean, I don't know, maybe that's just me. Maybe nobody else is, but that's, I mean, I've had that whole thing. And I go, wait a minute, what does it say? What did Paul say? And we'll go through this in detail in another session, but he talks about how one plants, one waters, and God's the one that causes the increase. Of what? When we preach the gospel. And I appreciate the idea to tell people Jesus loves them or say, God bless you. That might get them thinking about God, but really the seed is the seed of the gospel. So my point is, if you're going to be a seed, pl- if you're going to be a, a seed planter, Plant the gospel as the seed, which takes a little bit of, you know, explanation. You got to sort of explain the gospel. You know, sometimes we can kind of get ourselves out of sharing the gospels. Oh, I just plant seeds. I just tell everybody Jesus loves them. Well, Jesus loves them is a, a, an incredibly powerful truth. But if you don't contextualize it in the broader part of the, a little bit more of the broader part of the story, Jesus loves them might translate to their heart that they're going to heaven even though they're not saved. Good. I mean, it could translate to them that they need to repent of their sin or they're doomed to hell and they're going to have to give their life to Jesus and he loves them so much he died. It could translate to that. But, uh, you know, you have to kind of fill in the blanks a little bit. And that's actually the seed that he's talking about. One plants, one waters. God brings the increase. The seed is the gospel. It's actually the full gospel. And so, I, you know, I think those are good ideas to mention God when you can and, and, uh, and, and, and hopefully get people's minds on the Lord. But... But I think that the, the seed that bears increase is the gospel. And, uh, and so um, I'll just give you a little thought. So for me, I just said, well, forget the bridge. I'm not, not going to try to figure out how the Falcons losing is a sign of this guy's eternal doom. So what I'm going to do is I'll just start over. I'll just start off on his, on his side with the gospel. And I just go, 
So, you go to church? That's as awkward as anything, or as cool as anything. They go, and, they, and in the South, everybody does almost. Well, yeah, or I used to, or, you know, I love when they go, oh, yeah, I go to church. They go, well, where do you go? And they go, uh, I go to that church, you know, uh, you know, it's over there. I go, man, you must go a lot. So much you can't even remember where it is. But uh, I'll say, so you go to church? And they may go, yes or no. And then I'll just go, have you heard the gospel? <laughs> I'm already there now. I don't need a bridge. I'm there. It's so simple. And they go, yes or no. If they say yes, I go, so you've heard? Boom, 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 boom. And I'll lay the gospel out. And if they go, no, I go, here, let me explain it to you. Boom, 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 boom. What do you think about that? And I'm just there. I'm not, I'm not trying to figure out the bridge or the what, you know what I mean? I just, I want to share the gospel. I don't want to stall out with trying to figure out the example to get myself over there because I've been a Christian a while. I've stalled out in many conversations, many conversations. And I just said, you know, I think I'm probably not good enough of a communicator or whatever to find the bridge in every one of these conversations. And somehow we think if we haven't found the bridge over in the conversation, that that must mean that the Lord doesn't want you to share with them. I doubt that's it. I doubt that's it. I doubt that the fact that you can't figure out how to make it a smooth transition into the gospel has anything to do with whether or not the Lord wants the gospel shared with them. Probably the Lord wants the gospel shared with them, and we just need to go ahead and, here it is, you know, and just give it to them. And, uh, and, and you don't have to be mean about it. Just be cool about it. Just be nice and calm and, and hand the gospel to people. Okay. Um, so we talked about that last week. We talked about how the gospel is meant to be shared one-on-one. Uh, any kind of mass stuff is like the bonus, and we don't want to trade off our personal participation in the gospel for the mass meeting only. And I talked about how, you know, as a preacher for years and years and years, um, I figured that since I'm preaching often, that's me preaching the gospel. If I get to share with a person individually, that's a bonus, but I think it's backwards. I think the big meeting is the bonus and the individual, you know, connection with people and participating with people in the gospel that way is the norm. And, uh, and then we talked about how the gospel will virally expand when all the believers together participate in sharing the gospel. And that's what we saw in China. We saw uh, how the church in China, when we were there, how the, the, the responsibility for, for declaring the gospel had spread across the, this large, large number of believers. And they all engage in sharing with others. And so then you have... Millions of believers sharing the gospel with millions of people, and ultimately, millions of people are getting saved. Amen. What if the whole church, what if today, the entire church in America, and I don't know the number, maybe it's 100 million, what if they all went out tomorrow and shared the gospel with one person? Beloved, 100 million people would hear the gospel. You cannot do mass evangelism to get 100 million people who are not saved to giant meetings. Even if you just did, I mean, tons of stadium crusades, you'd never get 100 million people to hear the gospel. But if 100 million people all shared with one, the gospel would hit 100 million all at once. That is a far more effective way to see the gospel go forth. And I'm all for the, the large meetings. I think done right, it can really be a, a way that people will get uh, to hear the gospel and, and potentially get saved. But I think if everybody just engaged in, in, in sharing the gospel individually, that would be so powerful. Amen. Okay. And then finally, we just said this, that the reason we're compelled to share the gospel, it's not... You're, you know, you're, you're a sinner if you don't share the gospel or their blood's on your hands. It's not for those reasons. It's, it's because Jesus wants them. Jesus wants them. He's in love with them. For God so loved the world. And, and it's the love of Christ for us that testifies of the love of Christ for the lost. And when you come to know Jesus' love and desire for you, the obvious next point is, oh, and he loves them the way he loves me. Oh, he wants them the way he wants me. And because I love him, I want him to have them. 
And so we minister the gospel out of a heart of love, not compelled by fear or threats or shame or whatever, out of love. Get connected to the love of God for you, and you will desire to minister love to his heart by sharing his love with others. Good. So, this week we'll talk about the message of the gospel. All right, the word gospel, it appears in the New Testament 103 times. It's a Greek word, evangelion, E-V-A-N-G-E-L. I-O-N, evangelion. That word simply means good news. And I think pretty much everybody kind of knows that. Gospel means good news or glad tidings. And so uh, the, the thing about it is you got to realize when you're, when you're wanting to share the gospel with somebody, you got something good to tell them. you got something really good to say. you got something really awesome to say. Now, in, in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus in the beginning of his ministry And he shows up and he's preaching the gospel. In fact, he's preaching the exact same message that John the Baptist was preaching. And and in a nutshell, we see it. So uh, Matthew 4, look at verse 17. Basically, Jesus, at the the onset of his ministry, um, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's just gotten back from being tempted by the devil in, in the desert. And he starts from verse 17, Matthew 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, just a first few verses down, verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, and here's what he was doing. He was teaching in their synagogues, preaching. So it said he was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's preaching, and that's the gospel of the kingdom. What was he preaching? The gospel of the kingdom. Teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds uh, uh, of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. You can keep your spot right there. and Look at uh, Mark 1. It'll come up on your screen. It gives the exact same account uh, through Mark's words. It says, when Jesus came to Galilee... Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. So we got to kind of get our mind around, so what is the gospel? What is this gospel that we're, we're telling people? Now I'll say this, the gospel is more than, it's more than the details that explain to somebody how to get saved. The gospel of the kingdom is more than that. The gospel of the kingdom, really, it's all the details about the story of Jesus. It's really, the gospel is Genesis to Revelation, to be quite honest. The gospel is the story of God's love affair with humankind, uh, humanity's rejection of God, the fact that God had promised his son the nations as his inheritance, the love of God to become a man, to to pay the penalty of sin, God's dealings with the nation of Israel and the the manifold details of that, the ultimate um, uh, consummation of this age, how the Lord is going to uh, finally and in completion judge sin and how Jesus is going to return and take ownership of the planet. He's actually going to take what the Father's promised him, the nations as his inheritance, and the Lord Jesus is going to rule and reign from Zion on the earth. And we're going to live with Jesus Christ as our king. He's going to be Lord of lords, king of all kings, reigning over all the earth. Amen? For a thousand years, we're going to experience his leadership. He's going to actually fully, completely destroy Satan At the end of that thousand years, Satan will be locked up at the beginning, and at the end, he'll destroy Satan. And then the Father and the Son together will rule and reign. The scripture actually says that the abode of the Father, the new Jerusalem, will come down upon the earth. And we will enter into an eternal age. And and I love how it's put in the book of Revelation. The the dwelling place of God is, is now among men. 
We're gonna, we, he will wipe away every tear. We're going to flow in perfect, unbridled fellowship with the Father and with the Son forever and ever and ever. Every demon, every, every devil, Satan himself will be destroyed. Sin itself is gone. And in, in complete union, without any veils, we will be in the state that Adam initially was in the garden, except we'll be filled with glory, able to receive all that God is. We will be able to actually have the capacity to receive the glory of the uh, eternal God, and we will get instructed and filled and grow in the knowledge of God forever and ever and ever. It will be ecstasy at the highest level, eternally, ever increasing. So, that's good news. Now, you're not going to be able to explain that. <laughs> you know, you're not going to be able to just go, hey, have you heard the gospel? Okay, it's going to be forever. Jeez, I mean, there are so many intricate details of that. But the, truly, the gospel story is the entire story. The gospel story is the t- entire story. Now, here's the deal. In the New Testament, when the, when the message of the gospel is referred to, it's primarily referring to the details that enables somebody to enter the kingdom. Jesus Christ is a king. He has a kingdom. And what's really uh, ministered in the New Testament when they say they preach the gospel, it's the details that enable somebody to have understanding and faith to be able to repent of sin, trust Christ's sacrifice, and, and get born again to enter the kingdom of God. So it's the simple gospel, or what we might say is the gospel of salvation. There are not multiple gospels. The gospel is all one, but there are certain details that speak specifically about how somebody can enter the kingdom. Now, are you following me? And so when I'm talking about what are the details of the gospel, from this point forward, what I'm talking about are the specific part of the story that enables somebody to enter the kingdom, somebody to get born again. Does that make sense? Okay, that's the primary uh, way that the New Testament deals with this word gospel. It's talking about the details that enable somebody to get born again. The good news of the story that their sins are remitted, that they don't have to be doomed, that, that God is, has taken that away, and that, that lordship, uh, it, you know, giving your life to Jesus as Lord, that that will uh, engage you with the faith to, to receive uh, Jesus' sacrifice and payment. Th- those details, that's, that's the part of the story that we're, we're primarily talking about. So when we say the simplicity of the gospel, that's what we're talking about. The details necessary for somebody to enter the kingdom. Okay. Moving right along. I want to take uh, a few moments and then just read through some portions of Scripture that give us sort of uh, some of these points, some of these details. We see a gospel proclamation from Peter with the Gentiles. We see Paul sum up his gospel proclamation uh, to the Corinthian church. With Jesus, we see that he came preaching something. What was he preaching? Repent, because the kingdom is at hand. Believe the gospel. And, And so for the Jewish mind, that's who Jesus is preaching to, they understood Many details about what, what repent and uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They understood automatically a bunch of details that we would need spelled out for us. For a, a first century Jew, for somebody to say the kingdom is at hand, they would immediately understand that God's chosen Messiah had come and was bringing the kingdom of God with him and that they needed to change the way they were thinking and acting so that they could engage with God's kingdom. So the simple message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For us, we might go, okay. For a Jew, that was catastrophic. The long promise of Messiah is here. The kingdom is at hand. And then, and then the next de- sentence. Therefore, repent. Change the way you're thinking and the way you're acting. Change the way you're believing. And believe the good news of the gospel. See, the, the Jew kind of understood, uh, in part, I would say, some of the details of the gospel because they had Old Testament scriptures that pointed to it. They had Isaiah 53 that pointed to the fact that Messiah would, would uh, be crucified. 
And they had Psalm 16 that, that pointed to the fact that he would be resurrected. They had Genesis uh, 3 that, that was what they called the, the proto-evangelium, which is the idea that one would come that would crush the head of Satan. So they had sort of the picture in part of the gospel in the Old Testament. So when Jesus shows up and says, repent and believe the gospel, that's, that's saying something to the first century Jew that you and I would need the blanks filled, on, filled in on. So we're going to gain a lot when we look at Peter and Paul and their explanation of the gospel to Gentile first century Christians. They're filling in the blanks in a lot of ways for stuff that the average guy that's not Jewish doesn't understand. Does that make sense? So let's flip over to Acts chapter 10. We'll read through uh, Peter. And I'll draw out a few points there. I'm really just giving you a kind of a list of, of the things that he highlights. And then in, in 1 Corinthians 15, we'll read through Paul. We'll get a list of the things that he highlights. And then we'll put it all together. I, my goal is to, to put in your hands the key points that, that you want to share when you're sharing the gospel with somebody. Does that make sense? So Acts 10, here's Peter. He's been called to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Gentile, but he's a God-fearing Gentile. He's had an encounter with an angel. Peter's had an encounter. Here they are together, and here's Peter going into a Gentile's house for the first time in his life because it was against the law for Jews to do that. He shows up. And they said, listen, we had an encounter with an angel, and the angel told us to go find you and for you to come here and tell us, and we're going to believe whatever you say, because we want God. Now, that's a pretty easy captive audience. So, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty fun. That, that's kind of how I got saved. When I got saved, I literally showed up at this, uh, at this uh, who's actually a, a teacher at my school when I was in high school. I actually walked into his office, and I said, I actually got a hall pass and took a whole period, and I said, I think the devil is trying to kill me and send me to hell. He went, uh-huh, I think that's right. I go, I don't want to go there. What do I do? He went, you got to get saved. I go, let's do that now. <laughs> I mean, I was just ripe for the pickings. I was like really in trouble, and my heart was really messed up, and I was like, help. So this is sort of what these guys are doing. They're sort of saying, hey... <laughs> We had an angel, he told us that we're supposed to go get you, and that we're supposed to believe what you say, and you're going to tell us all the, all the words about you know, life in God, so come and tell us. So here's Peter, he walks in, verse 36, Acts 10, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, and began from from Galilee, now we just referenced when it began from Galilee, because Jesus is the one that started it in Galilee. Began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who is ordained by God to judge, to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness... That through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Now, if you continue to read, what you find is that as they were listening, the Holy Spirit is poured out on them, and they all begin to speak in tongues as they're listening to, uh, to Peter give this gospel proclamation. And, and, and then, it, then Peter says, can anybody for, forbid that they should be baptized, these who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did at the beginning? And, and so what really what's going on is this. While they're listening to Peter uh, uh, preach the gospel, first gospel proclamation to the Gentiles, Peter's preaching it. They're listening. While they're hearing 
uh, Peter, they are believing it. They're actually getting born again while he is preaching to them. And that's how they get baptized spontaneously in the Holy Spirit. Because the scripture tells us, Jesus explained about the Holy Spirit, that the world cannot, or unsaved people, cannot receive the Holy Spirit. Well, these guys, as they're listening, one minute, they're not saved. They're listening, they get born again, and then, bam, they get spontaneously filled with the Holy Spirit, just like the disciples did on the day of Pentecost. Now, that's pretty cool. That's, like, seriously awesome. That'd be really fun. You're out there, you know, sharing the gospel with somebody, and you're halfway through, and the guy goes... And you're like, praise God. I think you got it. I mean, they just start praying in tongues right in the middle of us. I just tell them about Jesus. That's what happens. So they're saved. They get spontaneously filled with the Spirit, and then they get, they get water baptized. Well, what are the key things? There's many points that, that Peter mentions. He mentions that he preached peace. He, he, he mentions that, that they were chosen to be witnesses and, and different things like this. You know, I, I realize that uh, we have a lot of emphasis on our own testimony, that we uh, encourage people to share their testimony. I want to I just say a little parenthesis. I want to encourage you to share your testimony, to share what Jesus has done for you, but ultimately your testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony tells what God has done in your life and why, you know, the, the results of how you have changed because of the gospel. But your testimony isn't actually the message of the gospel. And even, even there, you know, we say we're going to go witness or we do, we do witnessing. And a lot of times that turns into just us sharing our testimony. But ultimately, there are details that that person has to hear that are going to penetrate their heart, that are going to be the power of God that will actually convert them. Now, your testimony might tune them into the fact that they want to be saved too, and then they need to hear the gospel and get born again. So I encourage us all, let's all share our testimony with people, but know that just because you share your testimony doesn't mean you shared the gospel. Does that make sense? And so... uh, that's what, P- that's what Peter's saying is, here's the details. Now, we're witnesses of these details. I'm confirming to you that this is real. I'm giving you my testimony that we ate and drank with him, and we saw him, and, 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 and he told us these things, and I'm, I'm giving you my testimony. But he actually covers some other details. So what are those details? I, I've, I've, I pulled out six. Now, you know, you could get probably more detailed in, in this one and pull out 15 if you wanted, or, or you could get broader and say there's really two points, but... I see six, and and this is not the exhaustive list, but this is just what I see in it. So first thing I see is this, right there in verse 38, he says that God anointed him, and he went, Jesus went around doing good and healing. And so the point is, there was a man, Jesus of Nazareth, that God chose and put his power on. That's that's what he's saying. He's identifying this, this human being, Jesus, who was anointed, who had had the anointing, the power of God on him, and he was destroying the works of the devil. Now, that's pretty significant. This man had so much power on him that his life was destroying demonic works. So he goes, there was a man that God chose. In other words, a man anointed by God. Secondly, he said, this man chosen by God, he was killed. People murdered him. They hung him on a tree. The the payment for sin by Jesus Christ is a centerpiece of the gospel. The fact of the cross that God became a man and died for humanity. That is a critical, essential part of the gospel. You know, Muslims, they honor the prophet Jesus, Isu, they, they, they honor him, but they believe that the story of the cross was this. They believe that instead of Jesus being on the cross and, and, and taking the world's payment, uh, uh, paying the world's uh, debt to sin, that it wasn't Jesus who was on the cross, it was Judas. 
that God switched their places and punished Judas for his uh, uh, you know, betrayal of Christ. And that because Jesus was you know, uh, the prophet of God, God would never allow one of his prophets to be killed in such a manner, and God whisked him away. What they've done is they've taken the very kernel, the very core issue of how does human, humankind get their sin paid for. Listen, listen to me, beloved. This is critical. How do you get your sin paid for? That is centerpiece to the gospel. People think, well, I'm a good person. I, I try real hard. I'm nice to people. None of humanity's works, none, not a million of them, not a 24-hour good work life will pay for the doom and the destruction that you've bought with sin. You cannot work off the payment. It's, It's that severe. Beloved, that should get our eye on a few points. Number one, how severe is sin? Galatians explains if you, if you do one sin, it's like you've done every one of them. Now think about this. But one sin, think about how in, intense this is. One sin is so destructive that you are doomed forever without the opportunity to pay it off. You're doomed to destruction forever by one sin. How severe is sin? That one sin could damn somebody forever and ever without their own ability to pay it off. Sin is extremely destructive. We've really got to get our mind around this. We, we kind of sort of, well, he's really a bad sinner. He's not so bad. You know, they're not, that's just a sort of sin. No, one sin dooms humanity forever. And you cannot pay it off. So at the core of the gospel is the fact that this man, Jesus, whom God had chosen, whom God had anointed, who was destroying the works of the devil, that this man, he died. He died. That's critical. They killed him. By hanging him on a tree. Verse 40 then gives us the third part that I think is essential. The third day God raised him from the dead. He didn't stay dead. He was resurrected by the power of God. He now walks in in a new life. He's actually raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. His newness of life actually is a testament that he's God and that you and I cannot uh, can, can no longer have to stay dead. His resurrection is a testimony that you and I can walk in newness of life. That's what Paul said. This is critical. And at the core of our belief, in Romans 10 and 9 and 10, it says you've got to believe what? That God raised him from the dead. Man, if you just meditate on that a little bit, I mean, go walk around a cemetery. Go walk around and look at the grave sites. And then read through the resurrection. He's not in the grave anymore. He's not in the grave. They rolled, the, the angel rolled away the stone. He's raised from the dead. He's alive forever. Beloved, this is the gospel. He's not dead. He walked out of that tomb. Oh, praise God. <laughs> He walked out of there. He ascended. He's alive forevermore. That's critical. The fourth thing I see here is this this point that he emphasizes, that, that Peter emphasizes, surprise. He emphasizes the fact that Jesus, surprise to me because I don't necessarily think about this in a gospel presentation, But he emphasizes it with these Gentiles that Jesus is appointed by God to judge humanity. And what it's speaking of is there is a judgment to come. 
which I think is a critical kernel. There is a judgment to come. You know what I think we've done with the gospel too often? We've emphasized the issue of the forgiveness of sin, and we haven't uh, emphasized the issue of repentance, lordship, and the judgment to come. And so meanwhile, you got people signing up for the forgiveness of sins who have never repented. They've never turned away from their former manner of life. They have no sensation of the judgment. They just feel like they're in like Flynn. It's like the guy that, that I heard preach the gospel as a teenager one time. And he said, all you have to do is believe it. All you have to do is just believe it. Just believe it. And you're in like Flynn. I remember listening to that going, that doesn't seem right. Because I believe it, and I'm about to go get drunk right now. I was a you know, kind of wild teenager, and I thought, I believe what he said, but I'm about to go get drunk. <laughs> so I'm in like Flint. I just knew that that wasn't right. There is a faith that is greater than simply believing it with your mind. There is a faith that actually compels all of your actions. And that's, that's the tension of faith. It is faith that, that connects us with the truth of the story, but it's faith that compels our actions. If I really believe it, I'll actually really live it too. So this detail, amen, this detail about Jesus being uh, ordained to judge the living and the dead, that's critical, that there's a judgment to come. Every man will stand before the judgment seat. Every man. Fifth, he's been testified by the prophets. There's a, there, uh, there's a list of Old Testament verses that describe Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. This is the one that God's been talking about. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the culmination of what the, the Old Testament was all about. And then six, he's the one through whom all who believe will receive the remission of sins. When you believe... God forgives and remits your sins. He, he actually justifies you. He, he makes it as though you were uh, all, innocent all along. And that is the, oh, the tremendous news. Peter can't even get to the punchline because the Holy Spirit falls on everybody and then they just, they just start having a Holy Ghost meeting at that point. All right, now let's look over at 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll move a little quickly, more quickly through Paul's. Paul bullet points it. He bullet points his gospel. Uh, he goes, here's the gospel I preached to you, and he just goes, boom, 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 boom. He gives us four clear points. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are also uh, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Interesting the way that Paul addresses the church on the gospel. He talks about believing in vain. He talks about having to believe it, to stand in it, and standing in that which you believe is actually what secures the fact that you're saved. It's not that you're working for it, but it's that your faith is evident because of the way that you live. Hello? He goes, by which you're saved, if you hold fast. I mean, that's just strong, unless you believed in vain. I want to propose that there's a lot of people that run around saying that they believe in the gospel and it's vanity because what they say they believe is not borne out by their lifestyle. Your lifestyle will bear out the faith that you ascribe to. Come on. And that's the New Testament declaration. When you believe the gospel, there are corresponding actions to your faith. Not that you're working, but your faith compels you to live differently. This is, this is the issue of lordship. And I'm, I'm going I'm to put that in a nutshell in a minute. The issue of lordship is critical. Verse 3, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, 
of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. That's died. Some are dead now. Some are alive. While the time he's writing that to the Corinthians. Seven, after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And, and, and there are details here that we don't actually even have. You know, it's, it's unclear when he, the 500 saw him. It's unclear when, when these things actually happened. Some of these things. Eight, then, last of all, he was seen by me. We know that was on the Damascus Road as by one born out of due time. Here's his four main points I, that I see. In verse three, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He's referencing the Old Testament prophets. He's referencing Isaiah 53, for instance. There's several chapters. Psalm 22. There's several chapters that detail the crucifixion of, of the Messiah that would, be, that would be coming. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Verse 4. He was resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. And that's crucial that we understand that the Old Testament prophesied of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Psalm 16, verse 10, clearly, he says, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will not allow him to remain in Sheol, which means you're going to raise him from the dead. How do we know Jesus Christ is Messiah? Because God promised to raise Messiah from the dead. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Come on. Three, in verse six to eight, it describes how he was seen. It's confirmed. There are witnesses to this. 500 and the apostles and James and Paul, they all saw him. And fourthly is the point that he puts on the front end. I put it as last because if you receive the gospel and hold fast the gospel, you are saved. If you receive it and hold fast to what you say you receive and believe, you're saved. It's not this sort of mental assent. It's not just, you know, you kind of just flippantly say yes. Uh, Let me help you with something. It's not simply asking Jesus into your heart or praying a simple prayer. Though you can pray a simple prayer and it will actually engage your heart, you can actually ask Jesus into your heart and he'll actually answer that. But do you know that the scripture doesn't tell us to ask Jesus into our heart? You guys still here? You're like, "Uh uh-oh. Why ask Jesus into my heart? Well, you know what? He's really kind. He'll use the least common denominator of faith. He goes, I know what they, the angels go, that's not really theologically accurate. And Jesus goes, I know what he meant. You know what the scriptures tell us to do? Make Jesus your Lord. Make him your Lord. In other words, simple faith equates to Lordship. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's boss. He owns me. I'm his. I'm his. I like sharing this example. If you know, if you walked into your work and you looked at your manager, your boss, and you said, you know what? Today, I'm basically going to do what I want. Uh, I know it's 11 o'clock, but that's my new start time. And I'll be needing coffee breaks every hour. And uh, I'll need some catered lunch from now on. I prefer filet mignon. We can do that, you know, just three days a week. The other days, let's just do, you know, grilled chicken or salmon or something of that nature. And, and you know, the afternoon, I'm going to have to take a little nap because after I eat lunch like that, I won't be able to work very well. And uh, I'm going to pretty much need to get out of here by about three, you know, miss, miss the afternoon traffic. And this is just kind of how I'm going to have to do because, you know, I, I know I work for you and all, but I'm, I'm really going to do what I want. How long would you work there after that conversation? (laughs) How long would it last? (laughs) I mean, your boss would look at it and say, what? April Fool's? Is this April 1st? What what are you talking about? You're like, no, I'm serious. He's like, well, I'm serious. Bye. (laughs) Lord is boss, manager. Lord, he's in charge. He's in charge now. So I... Here's here's the way I look at it, and then I'm going to give you the points of the gospel that I think are essential, and then we'll land. To me, the proclamation of the gospel is a simple, I've got good news, and I've got bad news. Let me give you the bad news first. The bad news is, you're doomed. Me and you are doomed. We're doomed to destruction, and it's not... 
it doesn't stop there. It actually continues. We're doomed to destruction and we can't get out of it. There's nothing you can do to fix it. That has to set on the soul so that somebody can rightly understand the good news. If somebody doesn't recognize that there's bad news, they won't recognize the good news either. You know, if I walk up to you and I tell you, guess what? Your sins are forgiven. If they don't think they're a sinner, they're just going to be like, whatever. I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. I'm a basically good person. Right? I got bad news. The bad news is you're doomed. The good news is there's one who can take care of it for you. And he did. He took your destruction and he paid for it himself. And how he's looking at you in the eye and he's saying, my life for yours. My life for yours. It's simple good news and bad news. The bad news is you're doomed. The good news is your destruction has been paid for. And the, the offer is my life for yours. That's the nutshell of this thing. My life for yours. The gospel has always been my life for yours. All right, so here's the details. Let me give them to you. These are the, however you want to say it, the biblical points, the theological points. If you're, if you're going to explain the gospel to somebody, I think you probably want to hit these points. Here they are. Number one, God loves man. So when I, when I do this with somebody, here's what I do. I go, you ever gone to church? Or you ever heard the gospel? I'm already across the bridge now. And I just go, you ever heard the gospel? And if they say yes, then I go, so you understand that God loves man so much. That he made man. He created us in his image and likeness because he loves us so much. He wanted a relationship with us. And I start there. God makes man because of love. He wants a relationship. That's number one. Number two, man rejected God by sin. Everybody has rejected God by sin. Everybody. And if they don't think that they're a sinner, go, come on, man, you ever, you ever told a lie? Come on. You ever stolen anything? A pencil? Come on. Everybody sinned. And I explain it. Even one sin is as if you've committed them all. Which brings us to the third point. Sin has doomed us to destruction. I go, look, I'm not judging you. I'm as doomed as you are without a savior, without a payment. We're doomed to destruction. And we need to understand kind of that point. There's eternal separation from God in hell and torment without Jesus. Sin has doomed us to destruction. Fourthly, the incarnation. But God loved you so much. He became a man. Jesus is God in the flesh. He became a man because he wanted to restore relationship. Fifthly, and he was put to death. He was, he was murdered as a thief to pay for your sin. He became a man so he could bring you back into relationship with him. And he died a sinner's death, a brutal, horrible death on the cross to pay for you. And he didn't stay dead because sixth, he was resurrected. He was raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is not just like some other small g God. He's not like Buddha, Muhammad. I, you know, he, he's not like these other gods, Confucius. I can take you to Muhammad's tomb, but here's the thing. I can't take you to Jesus' tomb because he's not there. He's, he's alive. And just as he was raised from the dead, you can be too. You don't have to stay dead. You don't have to stay doomed. His resurrection. Seventh. And he is offering you forgiveness. He's offering you the payment. 
He's offering to actually wipe it all out, to cleanse your slate completely. He's offering justification, innocence. He wants to restore your innocence. Eighth, and here's how you say yes to the offer. Here's how you say yes to the offer. Lordship. He's looking at you in the eye. He's saying, my life for yours. My life for yours. Somebody wants to know, how do you, how do you get saved? Simple. He'll take your life. You give him your life. He'll, take, he'll give you his life. You give him your life. He'll give you his life. You give him your life. We've, we've made the bar so low. We've got all these people running around believing themselves to be saved because they prayed a simple prayer. They asked Jesus in their heart or they, I don't know, did something. Salvation has always been about lordship. It's always been about lordship. Now listen, I understand there's immaturity. I understand that believers, you know, they start off really mature. They make a lot of messes. You know, they're babies. I mean, I get that. And there's growth that has to take place. Nobody starts off, Jesus Christ be my Lord, and they're like, perfect. They grow in their actions. They learn to say no to sin, yes to God. I get this. But there is that real thing where you say, I want you to have my life. And I'll receive yours. The requirement of lordship. And then ninth, the surety of judgment. I just simply say, when I'm sharing with people, I just simply say, because here's the deal, we'll all stand before him one day. And you'll either stand before him on your own merits or on his. You'll either stand before him trying to explain how you've paid for your own sin or how you have taken his payment for your sin. Here's the thing, you can't pay for your sin. There's nothing you can do to pay for it. It's too expensive. You can't pay for it yourself. Receive his payment, give him your life, and you'll stand before him pure, cleansed. He's going to judge everybody. And that day when he looks in your eyes and investigates your life, you'll stand before him on his merits and not yours. And then the final thing is the offer. Do you want to give Jesus your life? And I would encourage you to say it like that clearly. Don't say, do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? Do you want to pray a simple prayer? Do you want to have every head bowed, every eye closed? <laughs> Don't say that. Do be clear and say the, the Lordship peace, what Romans 10, 9, and 10 says. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is your Lord, you will be saved. In Rome, if they confessed Jesus as Lord, they were putting themselves in the danger of death because to say anybody else was Lord except for Caesar had a death penalty associated with it. This Jesus is Lord flippant faith, that was not what they were talking about in Romans 10, 9, and 10. So make the offer clear. Do you want to give Jesus your life? Do you want to receive his life and give him yours? Some people, you'll share the gospel, you'll share through those nine ideas, and they weave together in a really easy story. I'm not trying to get you to get a list and go, uh, what was number four again? Oh, dear God, I forgot number four. That's not the point. The point is it's a story. And I just broke it down into little bite-sized things. But this is a clean story you can tell in two minutes. Some people, they're not ready for the offer. Some people, that bomb hasn't exploded. And you can be glad about it. You share it with them, they're like, ah, you go, okay, it's cool. I like you a lot, man. And they walk away and you're going, because <laughs> they've got a bomb stuck to them. And it may didn't blow up. Maybe it didn't blow up right then. But they might be at home at night and the Lord's going, what, some phrase you said, you'll stand before him on your own merits. And the guy's going, stand before him on my own merits? Huh? I don't want to stand before him on my own merits. And the bomb goes off. You never know when the bomb's going off. This thing is 
you know, dangerous. You don't know. It's volatile. It might go off while you're talking to him. It might go off that night. It might go off in three years. Your responsibility isn't to make the bomb go off. Your responsibility is to hand them the bomb. I've got good news. Here's a bomb. (laughs) It's really good news because it will blow them out of that encasement of sin and bondage. It will blow the chains right off of them. So some people offer, some people you don't. The point is, you give them the gospel and the Lord is the one who's in charge of the results. Praise God for that. He's in charge of the results. We do what we can do, and he'll do what he can do. He won't do our job, and we can't do his. But if we do our job, people are gonna, they're going to hear the gospel, and when they hear the gospel, the Lord is going to use the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Amen. Amen. All right, good. Let's go ahead. Let's stand. Is this helpful? I want to make it clear. And that's what what my desire is today, is to make it clear. You've got those written down. You can go back and look at it. And then get them in your own language. You know, just get the story. I've got it to where I can just share the simple story with each of those points in it within about three minutes. And if I, if I want to go real short, I can do a minute. I can just share the simple message of the gospel. And the Lord is the one who does with it what he wants. Amen. Good, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray for faith to arise in our soul. I pray that we would recognize that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And I'm asking you, Lord, right now, I'm asking you to let boldness arise in our hearts to share the gospel, to engage with you in the ministry and the mission of the kingdom of God, the gospel. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you for clarity on our minds. I pray, God, just like Jeremiah You'd put the word in us like fire shut up in our bones. And we'd grow weary of holding it back. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. I want to pray for boldness. If you just say, you know what? I just, I want to share this. I just need confidence. I need some boldness. I need the Lord to help. If you'd say that's me, just raise your hand. I want to pray. Lord, we all need this. So I'm asking for a release of boldness, a deliverance from fear. God, that we wouldn't care if it's awkward. We wouldn't stall out on a bridge trying to come up with the the right words. But we'd recognize that the power is in the gospel and that you want them, Jesus. You want the lost. And I pray for clarity to come because clarity in our minds will release boldness in our hearts. Let clarity come about what this gospel message is and how the simple sharing of the gospel can be the power of God to salvation for those who believe. So Lord, I'm asking, release boldness right now. We want to run with you. We want to engage with you. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for it. We receive it in the name of Jesus. Everybody said amen. Amen.